Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. A sermon introduction really only has one goal. It doesn't have to do everything. It is simply intended to capture the the attention of one's audience. I don't think I'm going to have much of a difficult time capturing your attention this morning. Many of you I know have already read this passage. You've talked to me about it. But Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 deals with the wrath of God and a number of our culture's most popular sins, including the sin of homosexuality. I can't think of any two topics that are more relevant in our day, more repulsive to our modern culture's ears than the wrath of God and God's condemnation of homosexual practice. In an audience this large, I suspect that there are a range of reactions to my simple announcement of two of the topics in this passage, the wrath of God and God's condemnation of homosexuality. There may be some on one side of that range who think in their mind, this is what's wrong with Christianity. This is why I don't believe any of this stuff. Your God is so judgmental And it's no surprise that you too are so judgmental. I don't want to have anything to do with your unloving, judgmental God. That's one side of the continuum of reactions. Another, there may be some who are excited that we are going to be talking about God's wrath against sin especially the prominent sins in our day. You almost get excited about any chance to put the progressives in their place. But before you cringe or before you celebrate, let me set this passage in its context so that we can see it rightly. One writer has put it this way. This section of Romans is not meant to condemn gay people. It is meant to condemn all people. Our passage this morning was written to those who have sinned against what God has revealed in creation. Mainly Gentiles. Romans 2 that we'll cover next week was written to those who have sinned against how God has revealed himself in the Bible. Then when we get to Romans 3 where everything is going, Paul will sum up everything and teach us that all have sinned, both Jews and Greeks, and all are therefore under God's wrath. It's not simply a passage about the condemnation of some people. In its context, it is a passage about the condemnation of all people. You and me 
included. Last week, we learned in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, in the gospel, God shows us how he makes people righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God revealed. The very next verse that begins our passage, we read that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The context shows us that God's wrath against all people is the reason that we need the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. God's wrath is why we all need a righteousness outside of ourselves, a gift to be received by faith because none of us are righteous. No. Not one. So if you're here this morning and you think that the announcement of God's judgment on sin means that God is unloving, let me first of all invite you to continue to come back week after week after week where you will find in this book that God is so loving. But He doesn't show His love by denying sin. He shows his love through dealing with sin in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But if you're here this morning hoping that I am going to start bashing on the sexual revolution, you need to be reminded that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is being laid out here to us to set up the good news. Good news for all of us, not just some of us. God's wrath is revealed against sin. And so today, I will not deny that the many sins we see in our culture are just that, and I will not deny that they are a manifestation of God's wrath. But all of this talk of sin and judgment is meant to highlight the gospel that God has made a way for sinners to be saved from God's wrath through faith in Jesus Christ. So now that I've cleared the lines and maybe calibrated our expectations, let's take a look at this passage together. Verse 18 summarizes the whole passage. It's the thesis statement. It's Paul's sermon in a sentence for this section. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there are two parts to this verse. The wrath of God is revealed, and then there's a reason that the wrath of God is revealed. The reason is the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The rest of this passage unpacks this verse. Paul begins with the reasons for God's wrath in verse 19. He teaches us what it means to suppress the truth. 
Then beginning in verse 24, we see the three ways that God's wrath is revealed. All three marked by the phrase, God gave them up. So that's the way the passage is organized. I want you to have that in mind as we read it together. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Like I said, this passage is divided into two parts, expanding on explaining verse 18. The first gives the reasons for God's wrath, verses 19 to 23. Then, in the second part, Paul lays out three ways that God's wrath is revealed, each beginning with the phrase, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. So, where we're going is very simple. Why is God's wrath revealed? How? is God's wrath revealed. Let's begin with the reasons for God's wrath. What does it mean that unrighteous men 
suppress the truth. There are two interrelated reasons for God's wrath. Two ways that are related that men suppress the truth. First, unrighteous men suppress the truth of general revelation and therefore are without excuse. The only way to be saved from our sin is through special revelation. So there's general revelation, there's special revelation. The only way to be saved from our sin is through special revelation, through what God has revealed in His Word, in the Gospel. We can only be saved through hearing the Gospel that Jesus died for our sins, that through faith, We can have a righteousness from God apart from ourselves, apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ. But the gospel is not the only truth available to us. The Bible is not the only source of truth. It is the only way that we can be saved, but it's not the only source of truth available to us. God has also revealed himself to us incompletely but yet truly through general revelation. General revelation includes the law that is written on our hearts, as we'll talk about next week. But it also includes the created world around us that is there for everybody to see. In creation, Paul tells us that we can see God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. In other words, to put it as simply as I know how, as we look around at this world, as our family went to the Grand Canyon a few weeks ago, and we look on that, truth is being spoken. The truth is that there is a creator. We all know it. We don't need the Bible to tell us that God has created the world. As we look at the world, we all know that God exists. And he has created all things. We may suppress that truth, but it is there for all to see. More importantly, as we perceive in the created world that God has created it, we know that He and He alone is worthy of honor and glory. He and He alone is worthy of our allegiance and our worship. So when people deny the existence of God, they are suppressing the truth. Whether we're willing to admit it or not, everybody knows There is a God. That's why Paul says that God's wrath is justified. That's why he says that they are without excuse. Creation speaks the truth. There's a God. He deserves to be worshipped. And when we fail to honor God, when we fail to give Him thanks with our lips, with our lives, when we fail to worship Him and serve Him, We are stuffing down the truth that we all know to be true. Our eyes, our hearts have been darkened. We've been deluded. 
Therefore, we are without excuse. But why do people suppress the truth? That there is a God who deserves to be worshipped, obeyed, served, adored. That leads us to the second way that people suppress the truth. Unrighteous men suppress the truth by exchanging the worship of God for the worship of idols. We were made by God to worship and therefore we all will worship something. If we suppress the truth that God is the creator who deserves to be worshipped, it is most likely because we want to worship other things that will serve us and our own desires. In the ancient world, the pagans worshipped statues and images of their false gods. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Whereas verse 25 reiterates, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. How foolish to worship something false and made by man instead of worshiping the one true and living God. As we think of the original audience of the book of Romans, as we think of these pagans who are worshiping statues and images, we think, how silly. We are so much more sophisticated in our modern world. We'd never do something so silly as that. Yes, we are so much more sophisticated. But the cultural idols of the Western world are no better. In some ways, they may be even more insidious and dangerous than the statues or icons that were used in the pagan world. As John Stott says, to exchange the worship of the living God for the modern obsession with wealth, fame, and power is equally foolish and equally blameworthy. What is an idol? As Tim Keller says, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God, he goes on to say, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Do we worship idols in our modern day? You better believe that we do. What are the idols that you are prone to bow down to and worship in your life? You need to be reminded. We're not just looking at some weird pagan practices. Anything in your life that is created by man instead of the creator that you serve and give your allegiance to is an idol. And when you exchange 
the worship, the service of the one true God for an idol, you are acting so foolishly. It's easy to see it in others, but it's equally as foolish in our own lives. Before we get to the wrath of God, Paul wants to make it so clear that the fundamental reason for God's wrath is because we have rejected God. And not only rejected Him, but exchanged the worship of Him for the worship of someone or something else. Each mention of God's wrath, these three iterations, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. Each three are grounded in idolatry. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God's wrath is not without reason. It's grounded in a universal rejection of God. Our worship of other gods, false gods. Another thing to say about God's wrath is that it will certainly be revealed in the future for all who reject Him. There will be a final judgment that is coming. It is referred to as the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. We see this in chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, because of your hard an impenitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But God's wrath is not only a future reality, it is also a present reality. And that's what our passage this morning is talk about, talking about. Look back at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. That's in the present tense, not will be revealed. That's what chapter 2, verse 5 is talking about. This is referring to God's wrath being revealed right now. And this, in some ways, is a grace. The present manifestation of God's wrath is an anticipation of the final wrath that is to come. Maybe to make us desire to flee the wrath of God that is to come. But God's wrath now, today, is not always seen in the way that we think about the wrath of God. It's not necessarily God throwing down lightning bolts upon those who reject Him. Instead, we see God's wrath, listen to me on this, And the way that God hands people over to their chosen sin. And the consequences that come with that way of life. He lets them go their way. Instead of holding them back and restraining them. He lets them do what they want to do. And Paul says this handing over is God's present judgment for a culture, for a world that has suppressed the truth of God, exchanged it for a lie. 
There are three ways God's wrath is revealed now, according to this passage. More could be enumerated, but let's stick with Romans chapter 1. First, God gives people over to sexual immorality. Verse 24, after he's listed the ways that people suppress the truth of God, exchange it for a lie, he says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This word impurity is our clue that Paul is talking about sexual immorality in general. All forms of sexual immorality outside of the bonds of monogamous marriage between one man and one woman because this word impurity is so often linked with the word porneia in the Greek, sexual immorality within Paul's writings. In a world where people, notice the connection, fail to honor God, he gives them over to sins which dishonor their bodies. The punishment fits the crime. Friends, God's Word says very clearly that sexual immorality degrades our bodies. We are not made for sexual relationship outside of the bonds of marriage. As one pastor says, casual sex encounters are often made, I would say almost all the time made, to look harmless and fun in TV shows. But the consequences in real life are far more serious. Emptiness, brokenness, and devastation. We should not be surprised sex is designed to irreversibly bind two people together. So when we act as though sex outside of marriage is good, when we say, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, then what are we doing? We're suppressing the truth for a lie. We're making ourselves believe something that is not true. And so God gives us over to the degradation of our bodies as an act of judgment. The second way God reveals his wrath is he gives people over to homosexuality. Again, I want you to notice this is linked with idolatry. Verse 25, lay your eyes on it. Paul says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. It's so important to see this link between rejection of God's general and natural revelation and the result of God giving people over to homosexual behavior. Homosexual behavior may be the best illustration that we have rejected what is plain in creation. The truth that has been spoken in creation. Nature speaks 
the truth. And in this case, it speaks the truth through the anatomy that God has given us very clearly. Our anatomy makes it plain that it is natural for women to have sex with men, for men to have sex with women. There is a complementarity between men and women that is bound up in the natural created order. Guess what? Only a man and a woman can have children. It can't take place between two men. It can't take place between two women. That's why Paul says their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. Nature makes it plain that homosexual activity is contrary to nature and therefore contrary to God's plan. You don't need a Bible to know that. Everybody knows it. So when people commit shameless acts, as Paul says, or if you prefer to flip it, when people commit prideful acts, we have suppressed the truth of God. It is clear that we have rejected not only God's design that is seen in nature, in creation, but we have then also rejected the Creator Himself. There are many people in the church today, not to mention the world outside of the church, who say and embrace the world's motto, love is love is love. They believe that if two people love each other, who are we to say that that is not love? Love is love. I just want to be clear. God's Word says something different than that. God's Word says something much more profound than that. It not only says that's not love, it also says that is God's wrath being revealed. It's proof that our culture has rejected God and therefore God is giving people over to their sinful desires. There are many biblical scholars today who would object. They do not deny that God's wrath is revealed through these unnatural relations that Paul is speaking of. They would simply say that those unnatural relations that he's speaking of are not about monogamous homosexual relationships. So what are they about then? they would mention one of two things. They'd say, Paul's not condemning monogamous, committed, faithful homosexual relationships. He is condemning same-sex child abuse. It was sadly very common in the ancient world, as in our day, for men to abuse boys. But it's very unlikely Paul would have been against that. 
But it's very unlikely that that is what he is talking about here. For one, there's no indication in the language he uses that he's speaking of abuse. Look at verse 27. They were consumed with passion for one another. That seems to indicate consensual homosexual sex. Others would say what he's speaking about here that's contrary to nature is people with heterosexual orientation engaged in homosexual activity. That is, men who are attracted to women having sex with men. Or women who are attracted to men having sex with women. But this is anachronistic at best to assume that Paul even has our modern notions of sexual orientation in mind. But even if he does, the phrase contrary to nature is used repeatedly in the literature of the ancient world, secular literature as well as Jewish literature to refer very specifically to homosexual activity. And that is certainly what Paul has in mind here. Now that is not to say that there is no such thing as same-sex attraction. I am simply saying that's not what Paul's talking about here. I know many Christian men who would say that they are only attracted to other men, and that's the way it's been for as long as they can remember. I think of a couple of prominent Christian leaders that would say this. Sam Albury, as well as Von Roberts. Christian women as well, like Jackie Hill Perry. I also know that these Christian men and women would affirm what I've been teaching in this chapter and what Paul is saying, that homosexual behavior is contrary to nature and is sinful in God's eyes. And that same-sex attraction is a result of the fall. I would say to you here today that we need to be sensitive to the distinction between same-sex behavior and same-sex attraction, and we need to be sensitive to the people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And who have committed themselves to sexual purity in that reality. They need our encouragement to do what they have been called to do, which is to live in purity. And that will mean that we need to be loving and welcoming to them in the church. I wish I could say more on this topic, but like I said, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about about here. So if you'd like to know more, I'd encourage you to read this small little book, Is God Anti-Gay? by Sam Alberry. It is the best short treatment of this topic that I am aware of. I simply want to close this section by saying we live in a fallen world. There is so much brokenness. All of us are broken. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. We are all under the wrath of God apart from Christ. Not just homosexuals. 
This passage does condemn homosexual behavior, but in context, it condemns all of us. The revelation of the wrath of God shows us our need for the revelation of the righteousness of God, a righteousness outside of us that is received through faith in Christ. If you need immediate proof that all of us sin and are under the wrath of God, apart from the grace of God, then simply look at the next verse in our chapter. Beginning in verse 28, Paul gives us the third way God's wrath is revealed. God gives people over to all kinds of social evils. Not just sexual immorality, not just homosexuality. We have listed here 21 vices. And in verse 28, Paul reiterates his reason for this third way that God reveals his wrath. He says they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. So again, they're suppressing the truth. They won't give God any mind. And so he gives them up to a debased mind. And the things that flow out of that debased mind are all manner of social evils. These 21 vices listed in verses 29 to 31 are difficult to know how to organize them. In fact, I don't see any organizing principle. What's plain, though, is they seem to all be generally sins against fellow man. Covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit. You get the idea. And in the middle of these 21 things, the 11th thing is that they are haters of God. So those who love God will love their neighbor. Those who hate God will hate their neighbor. Is there any wonder that in a world that has largely rejected God, we live in a world full of social disintegration. And we know it's sin. If nature reveals specifically that sexual immorality and homosexuality are sin, then our conscience reveals that we know sexual sin, homosexual sin, and all kinds of hatred towards other people is sin. We know it. And because we know it's sin, we also know that it deserves God's wrath. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What verse could better describe the world we live in today? Not only a world given over to sin, we even give approval to those in the world who engage in this sin. We celebrate it. Pride Month is the most obvious example. But let me quickly say that it's not only the progressive left that gives approval to sin. Conservatives do the same thing. 
We celebrate the politicians and pundits who engage in deceit and maliciousness and gossip and slander. We give approval to those who are haughty and boastful. We not only engage in these things, we give approval to those who practice them as well. The world out there is doing that in the media, even in the church. We see the same thing. What further evidence do we need that we live in a world that has suppressed the truth of God, exchanged the worship of God for the worship of idols? What further evidence do we need to know that we are under God's present wrath and deserve His future and final wrath? What further evidence do we need to see that a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves is the only thing that will save us from God's wrath? But we won't hear of this righteousness through general revelation. It will only come from the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel. Not only does God reveal his wrath, where is he going in chapter 3? Paul says, now the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? He has satisfied the wrath of God for all who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has revealed His glory in creation. He has revealed His wrath against those who suppress the truth of God seen in creation. But He has also revealed a way to make sinners righteous and in all who believe he has revealed his power to save how should we respond to the ways God has revealed himself to us we should praise him and glorify him what got us into this mess The failure, the refusal to worship God and to honor Him as God. So what will repentance look like? Returning to allegiance to God, worship of God, reverence of God, wholehearted devotion to God, saying, I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in you alone. I will glory in you as my creator. I will glory in you as my redeemer. Let us pray. Father God, thank you that you have revealed your wrath so that it will drive us to see the revelation of your grace. Help us to be a people who not simply look out there to all that is wrong in the world, but to look in our own hearts to see our need for grace. And then as we look on the world that really is disintegrating, 
May we have hearts of compassion that make us eager to take the gospel into that world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.